Well, good morning, church. As Aaron said, my name is Casty Shaw. Many of you know me as Casty Clausen. Um, I'm still getting used to being Casty Shaw. Um, and it feels like I am back at my preaching home again. I interned, as Aaron said, back in summer of 2019 here, and part of that internship included some preaching. Um, and so that's why it's my preaching home, and I love being back here. Um, it's obvious to say, for most of us, 2020 upended our lives. Um, pandemic and switched up rhythms and new relationships and then trying to discern how to move forward. It was not an easy year. As Aaron mentioned, the last two years of my life have not been um, slow. <laughs> they've been really, really good, but they've not been slow. In the last year and a half, I graduated college, I got engaged, I experienced a pandemic, I got married. Um, two months after I got married, I moved again to start grad school at Anderson University in Indiana. Um, so I started grad school, started a new job, ended another job, all the while getting used to newlywed life. <laughs> so it was a fun year. Anybody who knows me knows that I am obsessed with my wedding pictures. So I had to take an opportunity to show you two of 1,400. Um, <laughs> so if you guys will put up the slide that has our, a couple of our wedding photos. Most of you know my husband, Brian. We met here in this very church building. Um, he distracted me back in the tech booth for my first couple times preaching. Um, <laughs> and I actually have you guys to think. I wanted to take a second for, to thank Brian's home church family for raising the man that I get to do life with. He is wonderful. So thank you for raising him alongside my in-laws. Um, I'm very lucky. We also have two very significant people in our lives, but also in this church's life, to thank for kicking Brian's booty into gear and actually asking me out. <laughs> this was at our wedding, obviously. I don't just carry flowers around. But Aaron and Don um, were both able to be a part of our wedding in November. Um, they're very special people to us. Steve and Dan, too, but, you know. <laughs> I had no idea the first time that I preached that I would be even dating the second time I preached, and no idea the second time that by the third time I would be married to that man. So um, life has begun to settle down. I'm in grad school, so it's not that settled, but it's begun to settle down, and we're very grateful for that. Um, but I have no idea what I would have done the last year and a half without my husband. So, shout out to Brian. I knew I would get emotional. He's the best. Um, we also have him to thank for the graphics, because they're really good graphics. And he does that work. But also for my message this morning, because I was trying to decide what I would do. And he said, you know, I used to watch The Prince of Egypt when I was younger. And The Burning Bush is a really good story. So I was like, okay, let's see what comes of that. And sure enough, um, the burning bush fits right into your guys' campfire stories series where, we're, where we are rediscovering Old Testament classics. Um, the Old Testament is really fun. It doesn't always get the rep of being really fun, but it's really fun. And so I'm excited that this is where my guest preaching is happening, this series. Um, 
We'll be in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning. This story I grew up hearing as like a really cool story, but like other than the fact that a bush was burning, I didn't really understand why I should care about it. I didn't really care about sheep or shepherds, and when I was in elementary school, I didn't really even care about the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt. Um, The burning bush was a miracle for a girl who grew up outside of Indianapolis because we never saw bushes burning. So that was really cool. But as I was preparing for this morning, um, I started to realize there was more in the story than a bush on fire. And I started to realize I had some questions for Moses. He is a person that I cannot wait to talk to when I get to heaven. Because he had a lot happen in his last life, starting when he was 80. He had a lot happen in his life. So I can't wait to hear about it. But we're going to start looking at the passage now. Um, the first three verses of the passage is where we'll start. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. My first question for Moses would be about what was it like to see something so extraordinary? as a burning bush that wasn't being consumed on such an ordinary day. We have a little bit of the story. That's what what I'm preaching on this morning. But I want to hear him actually talk about it. I mean, try and imagine with me for a second. Think of something you do every single day. Think of a daily activity, maybe taking a walk or sitting in your office or going grocery shopping. And you look out your window and there's a car rolling down the street with no driver. And this is like a regular car, like not a fancy Tesla that drives itself. Like this is a regular person, Ford, okay? (laughs) Rolling down the street with no driver. What would you do? How would you respond if you just saw that outside of your window? Moses was a man who, if you remember, was supposed to die the day that he was born. Instead, his mother put him into a basket and sent him down the river. And the Pharaoh's daughter, the Egyptian princess, found him and chose to raise him in a palace, the Egyptian palace, with her. This was a time when Moses' people, the Israelites, were being enslaved by those same Egyptians. Moses, instead of dying like his other Israelite counterparts, um, ended up being raised in a palace. And quite a few years later, he sees this Egyptian beating up an Israelite. And so as he's trying to figure out who he is and what his nationality is, is he Egyptian, is he Israelite, he wants to show his loyalty to the Israelites. And so he kills this Egyptian, which is a strange way to show loyalty, but When he finds out, he thinks he's not seen. And as soon as he finds out that an Israelite saw him do this, he is afraid that he'll get punished, and so he runs away. And as he runs, he meets his future wife, 
and starts working for his father-in-law, Jethro, shepherding his sheep. Now, part of rediscovering Old Testament classics is putting yourself into the story. And as a person who recently got married, I had to put myself in the place of Moses' wife. And I started to think, what would happen if my husband had to work for my father? This is my dad at our wedding day. If you can't tell, it was a very emotional day. So we had a lot of fun at the reception, and he dealt with it by putting a part of his suit on his head. Um, <laughs> anyone who knows Brian and my dad um, knows how much fun they have together. And so I don't know that they would be the most productive duo. Um, but I had to just imagine that for one moment. <laughs> So this is where we pick up the story of the burning bush. Moses was doing the work he did every day, probably more productively than my husband and father would be doing. Um, and this was the work he'd done for 40 years straight. Anybody who has worked for one year or five years or 20 years or more knows that when you do the same thing every day, it gets kind of boring. You get kind of stuck in a rut and if you add to that, you can't change your decorations, you can't move, you can't change offices, you can't change your house, you can't change the route you take to different places, you can't switch anything up, which means Moses' life was pretty boring. So this day, in this passage, Moses goes a little bit out of his way. He goes to the west side of the wilderness, it says, and think of something like a traffic jam that just kind of sets you off for a minute um, not a huge disruption, but it's out of your way for sure. And all of a sudden, he sees the strangest thing. There is a bush burning up. Now, maybe this wasn't as odd to him as it would be to um, north side of Indianapolis, Cassidy. But he noticed that the bush was not being consumed, as the scripture says. And verse 3 tells us what Moses' reaction was. Moses gets curious. Moses wondered why that bush wasn't acting like other bushes would if they were in the desert burning up. Why is that thing happening, disrupting my day? Let's go check it out. This beginning of the story makes me wonder if there's anything in your life that is boring to you. Maybe you're tired of making meals over and over again. Do the kids really need lunch and dinner? It's a lot of food. Maybe you're so used to driving the same road that you kind of black out and you forget how you got from point A to point B, but you're there. Maybe you take the same walk every single day and it's starting to lose its charm a little bit. Or maybe the friends you see are the same ones you've seen for a couple of decades, and you feel like you're talking in circles. Maybe it's something as simple as your bedtime routine that's the same every single night. And if there were something that disrupted that routine, what would you do? 
Maybe you would barge forward and ignore what's happening and just go about your rhythm and routine so you don't have to stop. Maybe you would pause and you would look and you would notice the make of the car and how fast it was going and if there were any passengers in it, even though there wasn't a driver. But then you would move on in your life and you would just wait to tell somebody about it. Or maybe you would lean in, seeing if you could find out more in a way that may actually make you change the direction you're going. I think this kind of depends on our personality a little bit. Um, you might know which one you are based on uh, road trips, if you stop when you see something cool or if you just keep going. But I think Moses' reaction has something to teach all of us. His reaction of curiosity and of wonder can teach us how to pay attention when our lives are mundane and boring and exhausting. I think Moses lived with eyes wide open to what was happening. And that makes me wonder if Moses gets curious, can we get curious too? I wonder if there's anywhere you've been living with your eyes closed tight to where God may be showing up in your life. And I wonder how curiosity might affect that. So the next part of the story, verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then the Lord said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. My question for Moses about this part of the story would be about how it felt to hear his name being called out of the burning bush. Before the voice identified itself, who did he think was calling his name? This is another place that I found myself rediscovering by putting myself in the story. And I think if I was in Moses' place, I would be desperately afraid. I think the holy ground that the Lord declares would be so vulnerable to stand on. Moses has been running for 40 years from a crime that he committed. And he hasn't heard from God. And finally, this voice identifies itself as the God who is known at Moses' time as the God of power and of might. If I was Moses, I would be desperately afraid of the judgment and the punishment that was about to come. I would feel exposed, being so seen and so called out as I was just doing my daily life. Who is he to come in and call my name? Don't we sometimes do what Moses did at first? Hide our faces in fear and shame when we feel called out. If 
how often do we expect the worst response from God? How many of us have ever been afraid to verbalize to God what we want? Because we're afraid that his response will be to rip our greatest desire out of our hands and our life. I've done that. (laughs) My husband's proof of that's not always his response. But I've done that. I wonder if there's a sin that you're afraid to confess. Or a sin that you're afraid to identify as sin. Because you're more afraid of the punishment from that sin than of the sin itself that separates you from the God who loves you. A practical way that this works itself out in my life is when I haven't sat with God in scripture in a while. This happened yesterday, and I'm preaching today. Um, but yesterday I sat down with the Lord, and I hadn't, I hadn't been reading scripture for a couple days, and um, I just kind of got worried. Like, how awkward is this going to be? Like, I haven't, like, talked to you in a while. It's like a friend that you haven't seen in six months, and you sit down, and you're like, what are we going to say? And I felt worried about if what I've done is ignore God. What is the first thing he's going to say to me? Surely it won't be something comforting, calming, peaceful. Thankfully, the next section gives us a little hint into the answer to that. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I want to ask Moses if he's ever wondered, like me, about God's timing. Moses, have you ever wondered why now was when God chose to hear the Israelites cry and then choose to come and deliver them? What I love, though, is that God's response to Moses' fear is vulnerably sharing his heart with Moses, who he knows won't understand. And God's heart for his people is that his people would know that he sees them. He hears them. He enters into their world and into their circumstances to deliver them from slavery promising a further deliverance into a land flowing with milk and honey. He removes the bad of slavery, and he gives them the better, freedom. 
And I wonder if anyone else in this room other than me has questioned God's timing in delivering them. I love people's stories, and there's no way I can know everybody's story in this room. But I wonder what you have seen in your life or in somebody else's life that that has made you question and cry out with all you are, and yet still it seems the Lord has not delivered you. Or maybe you've been confused by the heart of God or what you've been taught about the heart of God. This passage reminds me of one of my favorite parts about God. God doesn't just see them. God doesn't just deliver them. But God sees us. God does not keep us at arm's length. And God wants to deliver us. He wants us to know him. He wants to show us that he has heard our cry and that he has already delivered us through Jesus. Jesus, God himself in flesh, who came to deliver all those who would choose to follow him, no matter the lineage. Through Jesus, in Jesus, with Jesus, by Jesus, God himself has entered our circumstances. God himself has delivered us from whatever suffering or pain or discomfort or boredom we experience in our lives. The worst part about this truth is that it doesn't mean it happens right away. It doesn't mean we're removed right away from an uncomfortable situation or a boring, mundane life or even a period of suffering. But it means that God is removing the bad from within and without us. And he is promising to bring something better, better than we could ever, ever imagine. The land flowing with milk and honey did not come to the Israelites right away. In fact, this generation who gets freed from slavery doesn't see the land flowing with milk and honey. And eternity with our Jesus may not be fully just yet. But nonetheless, God sees us. And God wants us to know his heart for those like the Israelites who are wrongfully enslaved. That slavery may be physical or mental or emotional or spiritual. And with that kind of definition of slavery... Doesn't the word enslaved describe all of us at some point? Verse 10 is wonderful as well. The Lord has chosen Moses to go to the Pharaoh and to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. Moses has a complicated relationship with both parties. The Pharaoh is an Egyptian. He helped raise Moses, and he is of the same people as the man Moses killed. And Moses, after 40 years of running away from punishment, is to go back to the Pharaoh and say, and plead and beg and ask 
for freedom and justice, God's will for the wrongfully enslaved. When the wrongfully enslaved have benefited Pharaoh all along. The Israelites, on the other hand, watched Moses, one of their own, be raised in a palace while they grieved for the loss of many of their own children. The Israelites were crying out with all that they had, their entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet still, they felt hopeless. And Moses is to lead them. Not just walk with them, but lead them into freedom. That's a pretty big call. And Moses' response to this call seems pretty accurate. Verse 11 says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This time I want to ask Moses, kind of tongue-in-cheek, what did you expect? Did you expect God to answer, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot who I was talking to, sorry to bother you, keep shepherding your sheep, keep finding food, I'll go find someone else. Did he expect that response? Did he expect that God would insist that he's qualified enough? Moses, you are my child, you can do it, you will be given strength. I think that if I didn't have God's answer in verse 12, I would expect it to be more on the latter end of things. I would expect God to answer in a way that bolstered Moses' confidence, in a way that communicated to Moses that he was equipped and that he could do it, that he was a child of God. But what does God actually say? Verse 12 says that the Lord said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. We don't get to that part of the story just yet, but let me assure you that the sign will be completed. Mount Horeb of the burning bush is also known as Mount Sinai of the law. So Moses and the Israelites do come back to the mountain and do worship God there. But God's answer to Moses is, I will be with you. What struck me is that God's answer to Moses has nothing at all to do with Moses. God's answer doesn't start with you, it starts with I. He hardly even qualifies the question that Moses asks. He moves on pretty fast. God promises his presence. When he can't promise Moses' quality or Moses' ability. God knows Moses won't measure up to the task. And God doesn't promise that Moses will measure up to the task. God promises that he will walk with Moses. And this made me think, what do we expect from God? How often 
do we anticipate God's answer for him? How often do we try to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps, by the bootstraps, and say, I can do it. And God tells me I can do it. How many of us take a step of vulnerability and say, and voice our honest doubts and our questions, but then we fill in what we think God will say, rather than letting him flip our expectations on the head and just be who he is. At every turn in the story of Moses, when we might expect that God would choose admonition first, that God would choose punishment first, that God would choose as a starting place something harsh or something painful, or maybe that he would put a band-aid of confidence over worries, doubts, fears, questions, boredom. Instead of any of that, at every turn of the story, God promises himself. God promises his presence entering in. And God promises deliverance, and deliverance that has already happened. Ultimately, God promises that he is himself faithful to the end, to deliver those he loves and those who love him so imperfectly. I'm an imperfect example. Thank God for Jesus, yes. And thank God for the Holy Spirit, who's an inner sign of God's presence. We don't need to worship on a mountain, although it's lovely to sometimes. We don't need to worship on a mountain to know that God is with us if we choose the Holy Spirit. As we go from this place, I want to ask you, where will you find your wonder this week? Going back to the beginning of this story, Moses showed us an example of living eyes wide open. How can we do that this week? And if you have questions or doubts or fears, if you've done something and you don't know how God's going to respond to it, how can you Reimagine God's response to you by letting him be who he is, and by letting his character flip your expectations on the head. Friends, this week, as every week, we are invited daily into the holy presence of God. Not to be condemned or judged or punished, but to be shown compassion and kindness, care and comfort, even as you may be asked to step outside of your comfort zone. And this comfort zone may not be a physical comfort zone. It might be a comfort zone in a way of thinking or a spiritual comfort zone, a comfort zone of how you engage with God. Whatever the comfort zone you're asked to step outside of. God meets you there with comfort. He meets you there with compassion and kindness and care in the midst of pain, 
discomfort, suffering, and yes, even boredom. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for this morning and for the gift of being together. We ask that you would fill our weeks with little moments of wonder, reminding us to be curious when we see something new. Lord, we know you are compassionate, kind, and comforting. Would you allow our hearts to sense you as you are, rather than the you that we expect? We thank you for your promised presence and ask that you would be near each of us this week. Amen and amen.